always this tendency to say Psalm chapter 86, but there are no chapters in Psalms. Each Psalm is an independent Psalm, so it's Psalm 86. And if you need a Bible, there's one on your table. And the first thing you'll notice when you look at Psalm 86 is there is a superscription, and that is the, the, the words uh, that read, A Prayer of David. And that means that this particular psalm is the only psalm written by King David in Book 3 of the Psalms. The psalms are divided into five sections or five books. We're right now in the book number 3, and uh, this is the only one that's attributed to King David. When you look at the psalm and you look at its style, if you just would read through it quickly, like maybe you did it this week or you will later on in the week, you'll discover that it is in its entirety a prayer. Every verse is addressed directly to God, which is unique among many of them. Which I wouldn't say it's unique, but it's not all the psalms are 100% prayer in form. The other thing I want you to notice about this is where it's located in the Psalms. It's immediate context. It comes between, this is going to be a real insight for you. You ready for this? Psalm 86 comes between Psalm 85 and 87. <laughs> I knew you would like that. Now, you say, well, what's so important about that? Well, Psalm 85 is a national psalm. It deals with the nation. It deals with the land of Israel. For example, in Psalm 85, 1 and 2, it says, Lord, you have favored your land. you see that? You brought back the captivity of Jacob. You've forgiven the iniquity of your people. See, that's a national psalm. 87 is an international psalm. So, for example, if you look at verse 4, it says, I will make mention of Rahab and Babylon and those who know me. Behold, O Philistia and Tyre and Ethiopia, uh, this one born there. See, so that's an international psalm. But Psalm 85, 86 rather, is a personal psalm. It's entirely about King David and his plea or prayer to God. And, you know, a lot of people use the psalms for personal devotion. And uh, I understand that. But, you know, when you're dealing with a national psalm or you're dealing with an international psalm, that's not so personal. But this would be one of those great psalms for personal devotions because it applies so much to us as well as to King David. So here's how I'm going to outline Psalm 86 for you this week. Verses 1 through 7, we have David's cry for help. Okay? His plea that God will step in and help him. Then verses 8 through 10, we have David's praise to God. Okay? Then verses... 11 through 13, we have David's vow or oath to God. His vow or oath to God. And then verses 14 through 17, we come back to his original prayer and he reiterates his original prayer and his cry for help. So that's how we're going to lay this out. Okay? So let's look at section number 1, verses 1 through 7, David's cry for help. Okay? And in this section, we're going to discover... There are six requests. Okay? He makes six petitions to God. So let's look at the first one. This is Psalm 86 and verse 1. He says, Bow down your ear, O Lord. Hear me. Which uh, also means not only hear me, but what? 
you know, answer me. So you have to understand when you say, hey, do you hear me? That means, guess what? You expect some sort of response. So God, answer me or respond to me. Now, we don't have the specifics. He just says, bow down your ear, O Lord, and hear me. Now, why must God bow down his ear? Now, we know that God doesn't literally have ears, but this is human language describing God. And why must God bow down to hear David? Well, look what it says in verse 1. For, here's the reason, because you need to bow down, O Lord, and hear me, because I am poor and I am needy. Now, he doesn't mean that he's monetarily poor. He's a very rich man. But he is emotionally and physically spent. He is bankrupt emotionally and physically. He is on the skids when it comes just to, his, to the human condition. So that's what poor means here. And he's needy. Uh, he needs help. He can't help himself. So what we have here is a guy probably who's weak, can't help himself, may not even be able to cry out loud. Have you ever been so sick where you can just only whisper? And uh, even if you couldn't whisper a word, God can still hear you. And that's what he's saying, Lord, get down to, get right next to my mouth so I can speak into your ear, even if it's only a whisper. And uh, whenever we're weak, we're so weak that all we can do is whisper, God can still hear us. He can still answer our prayers. And some of you have been in that situation. So that's petition number one. Petition number two, also down in verse number two. Preserve my life. Preserve my life. For I am holy, meaning I am devout. I am uh, separate. I am, uh, the word holy can mean separated. I am one of your people. I'm not like the heathen people. Uh, But it could mean devout. So what we have, he says, Lord preserve my life. That means keep me alive. So what is the... If I, if I said, Lord, keep me alive, then there's an indication of what? That I not, might not make it, see? So that's what the prayer is. Keep me alive. Help me get through this day. Uh, just like Dayton went back in the hospital. His prayer is what? Just help me get through the night. You know, that's... I, when my kids were sick, when they were little, I just prayed that somehow I could get through the night and the sun would come out. If the sun came out, I just felt much better. I knew things were going to be better. It was a new day. It was new hope. And so he says, you know, preserve me, sustain me for another day. The reason for I am holy, which means I am, I am yours, basically. Okay? Not that he's without sin, but that he is uh, pious toward God. He has a heart toward God. And then look what he says at the end of verse 2. Save your servant who trust in you. Save your servant who trust in you. First of all, he says, before that, he says, in fact, I just skipped a sentence, didn't I? You're my Lord. You see that? Notice the word my. You're my God. Uh, speaks of uh, a relationship. This is David's confession. I'm holy. You are my God. So he has a personal relationship with God. Now we come to the third petition. And that's at the end of verse 2. Here it is. Save your servant who trusts you. Save your servant who trusts you. Now, it's interesting to me, at this point, he immediately goes and starts speaking in the third person. Where he goes in verse 2, my God. Now he says, save your servant. Which is sort of a strange 
way of addressing it. Now, I remember when Bob Dole ran for president, and they would ask him a question in a debate. If Bob Dole won't do that, why wouldn't he say, I won't do that? Why do you think Bob Dole won't do that? It's a little strange, you know, speaking in the third person about yourself. And David is speaking in the third person. I think it's a, a sign of humility, in a sense. That's what he's doing. He doesn't even bring his own name in. Just save your servant. He doesn't say, save me, I'm the king. If you're going to save anybody, save me, I'm the king. Now what does he say? Save your what? Servants. So he saved your servants. And notice how he describes himself. Who trust in you. The basis of his relationship is trust. He trusts God. He trusts God to bow down and hear him. He trusts God to preserve him. He trusts God to save him. He has his faith in God. And that's what God responds to. So there's one thing that God always responds to, and it's faith. You never see God turn away from a person who trusts in him. That's faith. Okay, now petition number four, request number four, down to verse three. Be merciful to me, O Lord. Now, the word merciful is a covenant word. When God established the covenant with the nation of Israel, when he created the nation, he said, I will be merciful to you because you're my people. And merciful means be compassionate toward me. I mean, it's a word that uh, uh, I might not be compassionate toward another person, but I would be compassionate toward people in my family. So it's a covenant relationship between David and God, and he asked God to be compassionate, loving, and compassionate toward him. The fact that he says, be merciful toward me, means that what? David needs mercy. <laughs> the, you, the amazing thing is, when you read the scriptures, oftentimes, you get as much out of it by what it doesn't say, as by what it does say. Bow down to me, O Lord. What does that mean? I can't reach up to you. I'm too weak. Look. Preserve me means, guess what? If you don't preserve me, I might not make it through the day. Right? So, save me, deliver me means, guess what? I need to be delivered. I'm in trouble. You see how it's not what it says oftentimes, but what it doesn't say that, means, that gives you the meaning behind what it says. So be merciful to me says, guess what? He needs mercy. He needs compassion from God. And... Uh, so let's just go on and, and find out what else it says. So look at the basis for that request in verse 3. For I cry to you all day long. So, he never gives up. He, he, he holds God to his end of the bargain. God established the covenant with these people. He said, if you're in trouble, cry out to me and I will save you. David's holding God to, that, to his bargain. Notice... He says, how long does he cry out to God? All day long. That's faith. That's perseverance in faith. There's a false teaching going around that says all you have to do is pray for something once. That's faith. That's the false teaching. If you pray for something once, that's faith. If you had to pray for it a second time, guess what? You didn't believe he heard you the first time and he wasn't going to answer you. That's doubt. That's a false teaching. How long does David pray? All day long for that mercy. The mercy hasn't come. Does David give up and quit? You wonder why we pray for the same needs week in and week out? Because we're not going to we're going to hold God to his end of the bargain. 
He has established a covenant with us. Jesus says, whatever you ask in my name, I'll do. We're holding him to that agreement. That's not arrogance. That's faith. Now, there's a there's a there's our end of the bargain in agreement too. Isn't there? Because you're going to see that David's later going to say, Lord, forgive me of my sins. <laughs> because if you just ask God for things one after another, and you're living in a state that's not holy, not pious, not devout, then God does not have to answer you. And David, but David's not going to give up, and neither should we give up. The old-time Methodist called this praying through. They'd get down on their knees in an altar, and they would pray until they had the assurance that God heard them, even if it took three hours on their knees. We don't do that. In the 21st century, we are an instant society. We want everything yesterday. We get mad now if our internet is slow. When you had to go to the old days, you had to go to the library and look something up and hope they had the book. See, so we, we are in trouble as a, as a people, and even as the people of God, because all that kind of thinking has infiltrated our thinking. And we need to get back to the basics, and we just need to pray through and not give up until God hears us. So he says in verse 3, Be merciful to me, O Lord, for I cry to you all day long. Okay, the fifth petition, found in verse 4. Rejoice the soul of your servant, or to put it in a more modern term, uh, lighten the soul, or gladden the soul of your servant. Now, if I said, Lord, make my heart glad, what does that imply? I'm sad. <laughs> my heart isn't glad. See? And uh, David is facing some problems, and he is in a state of depression. He's not a happy trooper. He calls himself the servant of God, and he is serving God as king, but there's no joy in that service anymore. <clears throat> Remember when President Obama was inaugurated the first time? How happy he was? People who supported him, how thrilled they were? Remember that? There was a joy when that happened. That happens no matter who the president is, right? But give them three or four or five or six years and take a look at their face. They say, what did I ever get? What am I doing? Still president? Yes. You think there's joy in it? He just can't wait to get out of there. He's trying to save his legacy. You know, that's what every president does. Doesn't matter whether it's Republican or Democrat or whoever it is. That is the name of the game. And what you have here is you have a man who's serving the Lord as king over God's nation, his people, but he's depressed. He's down in the doldrums. And so he needs his heart lightened. He needs to be gladdened. And he asks God to do that right there in verse 4. That's the fifth petition. Now look at the reason. Look at the reason. Verse 4. For to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. And the word soul there doesn't mean you're just your soul. It means your whole being. Uh, I've tried to get myself out of, this, out of these doldrums, and I can't. So, Lord, I'm just, I'm just looking up to you. I'm lifting myself up to you. Help me, Lord. Gladden my heart. Only you can do what I cannot do. That's the first reason he asked God to do it, why he requested of the Lord. Now look at the second reason in verse 5. For you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive. Now here he describes God in two ways. God is good and ready. 
he's good at giving and he's good at forgiving. See? He asked God to give him something, to do something, and now he asked God to forgive him. Not only to give, but also to forgive. And he says God is good and ready to give, and God is good and ready to forgive. Now, I'm not always ready to forgive. I hold grudges. I don't let the grudges get the best of me. But I, I just, I, I, there are people that I just don't want to forgive. They need to stew in what they've done for a while. See, that's how I am. Right? You're like that, you know what I'm talking about. Some of you are so, you're like God, you have God qualities. I don't have God qualities. But those, those of you who are like I am, you know what it's like to, to not be always you know, up front and ready to forgive on an instance notice. But what happened in, in South Carolina? Look at all the people whose relatives got killed. Immediately they're forgiving. I mean, what a heart that is. I don't have a heart that big. But God does. And that's an indication of that these people are God-like people. So he says, God, you're good and you're ready to forgive. Okay. Uh, if he says that God's ready to forgive, what does that imply? That means David needs what? <laughs> Forgiveness. <laughs> David's got himself in some trouble. Now, we don't know what it is that's got him into the trouble. We don't even know what the trouble is yet. We'll discover what it is. But he needs to be forgiven. But we know one big sin that he committed, don't we, with Bathsheba. We know also he trusted in his troops. One time he decided to, uh, he was always counting his troops. He was taking census. Determine whether how many men that he could, you know, draft in the in the service of for fighting the enemy. And he said, "Well, if I can just get that many, I'll really be ready." Well, guess what? He wasn't ready. He could have gotten ten times that many and wouldn't been ready. Because the only time you're ready is when you're trusting in the Lord. And so he's gotten himself into some problems, and he's gotten out of God's will, even though he's still serving God, and he needs forgiveness. So that's very interesting. Now we look at the third reason he makes the prayer. He says, give ear, or verses in verse, end of verse 5. He says, God's good and ready to forgive, and he's abundant. Look at that. He's abundant in mercy to all those who call upon him. Again, we have this covenant word, which means kindness, or compassionate, or loving kindness. Notice, he's abundant in this loving kindness. Um... He has the resources to do everything that David is asking for. Uh, God is not stingy in his mercy toward us. Somehow we think we have to earn God. If I can only do this, God will do this. No, God's not stingy. He doesn't net out mercy piecemeal. He has these resources at his fingertips, and these resources are abundant. Abundant to do good, ready to do good, and ready to forgive. Notice who it's available for. And abundant in mercy to all those who what? Call upon Him. To all who call upon God. It's, see, because when you call upon God, you're basically saying, I'm at the end of my rope and I can't help myself. And that's a sign of faith. And the people who call upon God are those that God is ready to pour out abundantly His love. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be what? 
What does it say there at the end of verse 5? Abundance and mercy to some who call upon him. All who call upon him. So often we are afraid to call upon God because we think, oh, how about if I call upon him and he doesn't respond? Well, guess what you should do then? Call upon him again and how about if he doesn't respond? Then what? Call upon him again and call upon him again and pray through. You know, just keep on praying. Don't give up. He said he would respond. But he doesn't necessarily respond on our time schedule. He knows exactly when it's the right time to respond. He knows exactly when our heart is right to receive what we're asking. Sometimes we ask for things and it's not, we're not ready to receive them. So now we come to the sixth petition. And in a way, it's simply a repeat of what he said at the beginning. He says, give ear. See, there's that response of the ear. You see that? Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. And then this is line number two. It's sort of the same thing. And attend to the voice of my supplication. Now notice the word Lord there. It's all in caps. If your Bible, uh, some Bibles will show it all in caps, which tells you that the Hebrew word from which the word capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D uh, is translated from is the word Yahweh or Jehovah. That's the covenant name of God. So he starts his prayer with Yahweh or Jehovah. Bow down your ear, O Lord, and hear me. And finally, verse 6, give, o, give ear, O Lord, Jehovah, to my prayer. He is calling upon the God who made a covenant with the nation of Israel, the one when Moses said, To whom should I say, Sent me? He said, Tell them, I am that I am sent you. Yahweh, Lord, capitals. Okay? So that's simply a repeat of that. So uh, then he adds this resolve in verse 7. In the day of my trouble, I will what? Call upon you. This is Notice now that's future. Do you see that? That's a future statement, isn't it? These are present statements, verses 1 through 6. So now he makes a vow. It's not even a vow. It's just he resolves. He lets God know. In the day of my trouble, I will call upon you. He's saying, Lord, this is not a once, one-time thing. I'm not calling upon you now, and then if you get out of, I get out of the trouble, I'll just forget about you. We've done all, we've all done that, haven't we? Lord, if you do this, I will do that, and I will, and then we forget about it. And he's making this statement that he will, this is not a one-time thing. He will continually call upon the Lord in the future. He will continue to exhibit faith. And he gives us the reason why he will continue to call upon the Lord. Look at the end of verse 7. Because, what? You will answer me. He has confidence that God will respond. How can he say that God will answer him every single time? On what basis could he even make that statement? Would you be afraid to make that statement? Because God has established an agreement or a covenant with his people that he would respond. So David, again, is just saying, I will do this in the future, you know, and because I know I have confidence that you will answer Okay, so that's David's prayer. We still don't know the trouble he's in, do we? We have no idea. It's sort of like a general prayer. Save me, deliver me, preserve me, all this kind of stuff. Now we come to David's praise. Okay? Verses 8 through 10. So he has this assurance that God is going to answer his prayer. 
So now he breaks into praise. Look at verse 8. First of all, he praised God for his uniqueness. Look at the uniqueness of God in verse 8. Among the gods, there is none like you, O Lord, nor are there any works like your works. So the first thing he does is he praises God and he basically says, God, you're unique. You're above all the other gods, the gods of the nations, and so on and so forth. And no one is like you, like your character. No one has your character, your commitment. Remember, the people who lived in pagan nations cried out to their gods all the time, didn't they? Remember Elijah on Mount Carmel? He said, well, it's the God who's, who answers is the God, the real God. And so he said, you go first. And all the prophets of Baal, they cried out to their gods, heal, do this, answer us, answer us with fire. Because nothing happened. But Elijah said, now it's my time. And he told them to throw water on this wood. Right? And then he cried out to God and fire came down, sizzled the wood. And Yahweh was the God who answered so this is what David is praising God for. He's unique among the gods. There's no other gods like you, verse 8. Nor are any works like your works. No works of the God compared to what God can do. He can open up a Red Sea to the universe. He can do whatever he wants to do. Then he praises the universality of God. Look at verse 9. All the nations whom you made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. So God is not only Israel's God, He's the God of all the nations. Why is He the God of all the nations? What does it say in verse 9? Because God did what? He made them. God made the nations. And one day the nations will come to their senses in the future and will bow down and worship God. Now the question is, does David think it's going to happen in his lifetime? So David's head of the nation of Israel, and he's a conquering king, does he think that there's going to come a time when maybe under his reign all the nations will flow into Jerusalem and worship God? And he might think that, but he'd be wrong if he did, right? But we know that one day that will happen. That every knee will bow, all the nations will come, and they will worship God. So the universality of God, which is very interesting. By the way, God created the nations. You know, in the beginning, God created. The uh, Hebrew word for created is barah, which is interesting. It's a word that's only connected to God when he creates. When we create, it's a different Hebrew word. Human creation is different. I create a, build a house. I create this, I create that. But when God creates, the writers always use the word barah. The word for praise is Barak. So he creates the nations, Barak, and as a result of their being his creation, guess what they should be doing? Barak, they should be praising God. We were created to worship and praise God. And of course, Adam and Eve, they turned and they follow another voice. So David sees the one that will come a day with all the nations will worship God. Okay. Then look at verse 10. Here's why they will worship God. For you are great. They're all going to worship you because you're great. And you do wondrous things. You alone are God. 
they'll come to their senses and realize that he is a God above all these false gods. So that's David's prayer. Now we come to David's vow, verse 11 through 13. David's vow. Look what he says. Teach me your way, O Lord. Here's his vow. I will walk in your truth. Sounds a lot like Psalm 1. Walking in the path of the Lord. Watch this. Teach me your way, O Lord. I will walk in your truth. Which seems to indicate maybe he wasn't totally 100% walking in the truth of God. And then, look at the end of verse 11. Unite my heart to fear your name. Unite my heart to fear your name. Now, if God, if he calls God to unite his heart, that means that his heart has been what? Divided. <laughs> He's uh, been in a tug of war. Remember James said, don't let anybody think that if they're double-minded that God's going to answer anything. Uh, and you have doubts, you see. So here he's saying, Lord, take away all this doubt, anything that's in there that would stand in the way. He says, unite my heart, which is sort of interesting that that's how he says that. And then when he says, once that happened, he says, I will praise you, O my God, that's verse 12, with what? All my heart. He said, if his heart, before, if his heart's divided, he's, he's uh, trusted himself a little bit, he's a uh, Depended on his own wisdom a little bit. Uh, he's taking credit himself for that war, that war, and winning it. See? But now he says, Lord, you need to unite my divided heart. And then when that happens, verse 12, uh, I will praise you, O Lord, my God, with what? All my heart. And I will glorify your name forever. I won't stop doing this. So this is the vow that David makes. Now we have the reason for that vow. Here's the reason that he makes the vow. For great is your mercy toward me. That's that loving kindness, compassion. And you have in the past delivered my soul, meaning me, from the depths of Sheol, from the realm of death. Uh, you know, you're dependable. I've called on, called on you in the past. You've done it. And I make a vow that I will worship you now with all myself because... In the past, you've been faithful, and I will continue to do this. So he makes this kind of vow. So now we come to the last section of the psalm. And here he returns back to his original prayer and cries out for help again. And now we're going to get to specifics. Now we're going to find out the trouble that David has himself in. Okay? And it's very interesting. Look at verse 14. O God, the proud have risen against me. Oh, there's his problem right there. The proud have risen against me. These are not people who have faith in you. These are people who have trusted in their own wisdom. What else he said? Verse 14. And a mob of violent men have sought my life. There is a coup underway. There are people who want David dead. There are people who want to topple his government, who want to dethrone him from being king. And this is the situation that he finds himself in. Maybe even those who want to assassinate him. So there's the case, and this is what the prayer really is about. This is the situation. He doesn't know whether he'll make it through the night. You know how fast the coup can happen, don't you? Remember how fast Russia fell? Soviet Union fell? Remember uh, who, was the, who was after uh, Gorbachev? 
Yeltsin. Yeltsin. Remember Yeltsin standing on the on the uh, tank? You know, and just like that, it's how fast the the wall fell between East and West Germany. It just happens. When it happens, it happens like that. That's how fast nations fall. David says they are after me. They want to kill me. They want to overthrow me. They sought my life. That's why he needs to be preserved. That's why he needs to be sustained. Uh, and they have not, look what he says in the verse 14, and they have not set you before them. They're not considering God's will, whether it's God's will or whether it's time for David to leave. They have their own agenda. So these are proud people, not trusting, faith-oriented people, although they're Jews, most likely. The coup probably was in his government. So they're against David. They want to take his life. Now watch the contrast in verse 15. But, you see that? Now what he's going to do, he's going to contrast God against these enemies. They want him dead. Look at verse 15. But you, O Lord, are a God full of what? Compassion and grace, meaning toward David. These people are against David. God is for David. And if God is for you, guess what? No one can be against you. Who can be against you? Well, there's a lot of people against you, but they can't stand if God is for you. Now, if God has turned his back on you, you're in trouble. Right? That's why David's crying out. And it, he's in a desperate situation. So he's contrasting God with the enemies. They are against David, in verse 15. But you, O Lord, are a God full of compassion and gracious. Long-suffering, that means patient, and abundant, there's that word again, abundant in mercy and in truth. So the first thing he says is God is long-suffering. God is patient. He's waiting for us. He's waiting for us to come to the end of ourselves. He's waiting for us to come to the end of our rope. He's waiting for us to come to the end of our devices and our schemes. If I can only get this much, then I can retire. Oh, who do you trust? Don't trust the stock market. You're in real trouble. One attack on the United States. Another plane going into another building. That stock market will tank so fast you won't know what hits you. And it'll go down six or eight hundred points that quick. And you'll, you'll have thousands of... Tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, depending on how much money you have, just wiped out. So don't trust in your devices, your ingenuity, or trust in God. And these people are not trusting in God, and David is trusting in God, and God's long-suffering. He's waiting for us to come to the end of our devices and come to the point where we just say, Oh, Lord, you know, I'm trusting you. Be merciful to me. Get me through this situation. doesn't matter what the crisis is. Get me through that situation. And he'll do it. He's just waiting for us to turn to him. It's taken evidently a while for David to turn to him and start crying to him over and over again. When you've been out of fellowship with God, and you've been living your own way, and just giving God the nod, just giving God the tip, less, than you, less of a tip than you give your waitress or your waiter. 10%. When the ticket in the restaurant says 18% equals, 20% equals, and that's what they expect, you're living according to your own devices, 
giving God the tip of the hat. Then when you turn to God and you cry out, don't expect him to answer me. David even had to be praying and crying out day and night. But that's what God's waiting for. And if we do make the turn, and we cry out, and then we don't give up, so he didn't answer me, now I better turn to the solution. We don't give up. He's ready to move compassionately, merciful in our lives. Does that make sense? He's merciful and abundant in truth. So we have to be resolved that we're going to obey the truth from that point on. So look what, here's the prayer. Here's really the prayer right here. Look at verse 16. Oh, turn to me and have mercy on me. Now, if he has to say, God, turn to me, what does that indicate? God's back has been turned on David for a long time, or for a while, whatever the situation. So he's asking God to turn and so that God is facing David. That's all human language. But you know when God's face shines upon the person, he turns to her. That means his blessing. He's asking God to now bless uh, him and meet his needs. Look in the middle of verse 16. Give your strength to your servant. Notice I need strength. We don't know whether that's physical strength, emotional strength, whether it's strength to fight a battle, overcome the coup. We're just not sure. But look what he says. And save the son of your maidservant. In other words, deliver. That word doesn't mean save and go to heaven. He means deliver me out of this situation. Give me supernatural strength, mind, body, spirit, whatever it is. And Lord, get me out of this situation. Deliver me out of a situation as much as Israel was delivered, the Hebrew children were delivered when Pharaoh's army was right on their tail. He opened up miraculously the Red Sea. No one can do that. You're unique that way, Lord. And that's what I need you to do. Provide a way out. Deliver me from this particular situation. And then he says this. Show me a sign for good. Why? That those who hate me may see it and be ashamed. Just like when the Red Sea opened up. There was a sign, and it was a sign to the enemy. And maybe we are doing something, we're going in the wrong direction here. That those who hate me may be ashamed. Because you, Lord, notice again all the capitals, have helped me, meaning in the past, and have comforted me, or they'll be ashamed when you have helped me and comforted me. So he's asking for a token uh, that will make his enemies shameful of their behavior and what they're doing in trying to overthrow David. So this is entirely a, a prayer, and it's a good prayer for us, I think. I think every one of us can pray this prayer. Oh, Lord, help. Can we do that? Can we pray continually and not give up until we get the help? Can we ask God to show us the truth and become obedient to the truth? Can we ask him to pour out abundantly on our situation? So it's not a half answer, it's a whole answer. Can we ask God to show us a sign? There's nothing wrong with asking God to show you a sign. Not so that you won't have doubts. That's not why you're asking for the sign. It's so your enemy will see the sign and realize, hey, maybe they're taking the wrong action. They're fighting not only against you, but against God. So he opens the Red Sea, and that's a sign of the enemy. Rome kills Jesus. God raises him from the dead. <laughs> 
what a sign that is. See, that's a sign that God's on the side of Peter and John and James and not on the side of the Sanhedrin. You see. And uh, when we pray on Sunday morning for the sick people, should we pray once and just forget about them next week? Or should we just keep praying? Should we send out that prayer notes every day, an email? Here's what we're asking you to pray for. You see. And then when God does something miraculous, There'll be no other explanation. There can't be any human explanation of why it happened. It'll be a sign of all that God was involved. And he was on our side. And I'm on the side of him. Next week we look at an international song, Psalm 87. Lord, we thank you for this great devotional song that was put on paper and poured forth, which poured forth from the heart of King Lord, so many of us can relate to this on a much smaller scale. But some of us, Lord, can relate to it on a significant scale where we have tried to run our own businesses a certain way and got ourselves into trouble or forced to turn back to you. And then on a smaller scale, our individual lives. But Lord, whatever the situation is, this psalm rings true. Help us to learn the lessons and never give up. Always trust that you're God who keeps your word. That you have established a new covenant with us. With the nation of Israel and you brought us, the Gentiles. And that we're, we are your people. So Lord, help us to be faithful and trust you to answer our needs. Christ,